company like uh, like Tesla, I put uh, 0.2% of my portfolio into in like 2011. And that, that, that position is currently up at least 100 times in value, uh, if not more. So Tesla has become one of my top holdings without me having to do anything. Mm. I, and in fact, I, I bought it very, very few times. I just didn't sell. Hello and welcome. This is Sunny. Welcome to the Sunny Point Podcast. Today we will interview Brian Feroldi. These 50 minutes will be the best 50 minutes you've ever spent in your life or it will come pretty close. So it's really great value. Let's get into it. Hello, Brian. Good to have you. Hi, Sunny. Thanks for having me. So a little background for this episode is over time from my experience and from what I hear from our followers, I've recognized there are some things that keep investors like me and others away from investing in high growth businesses, which keep them away again from making most of the long-term compounders. Now in this episode, we're gonna check up with Brian Feroldi for his guidance. If you ask Brian, he'll introduce humbly himself as an individual investor, an analyst, and a writer for The Motley Fool. But let me tell you, he's a rock star in the growth and tech investing community, especially on Twitter and Motley Fool. So he believes in buying high quality businesses for the long term and let them compound over time, right? It's not just words and frameworks though. His performance, if you look at it, from what I gathered publicly, <laughs> he was up above 50% as of end of October. Uh, Brian, I would assume you performed in line with the market and you would be above, above 70% for 2020. If you look at his top five holdings, again, from what I gathered publicly, Mercado Libre, Tesla, Amazon, Netflix, and DocuSign have over the last five years returned, <laughs> just wait for it, 19, 60%, 20, sorry, 2,040%, 470%, 444%, and 610%. Apart from these numbers, though, he's also super passionate. All the podcasts that I've listened to, he's helping out the little guy. He's going from the bottom and doesn't take any uh, excuses in terms of explaining anything. So he's also, I guess, up 50x from his first in investment in Netflix for those and many other reasons. We are grateful to have Brian Feroldi answer your questions today. Brian, did I get anything wrong? Uh, I'm not used to that kind of flattery, so I, 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 super, I super appreciate it. Uh, I thought I should do that, at least if I was not introducing you uh, with an alliteration. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which is how uh, sometimes I hear him introduced on the podcast. Now, yes. do we don't have titles at The Motley Fool, and I'm a big fan of making up the weirdest titles that I can possibly think of. I know. I'm always <laughs> like, what's he going to come up with today? <laughs> so also to those who haven't listened to Brian's past content, um, he's done some great work on developing a checklist that help people identify how to identify great businesses, right? Now he has the checklist and the evaluations available for free, and I will link them in the show notes below. And today I'll go through some specific questions. Does that sound good, Brian? Sounds great. Okay, so the checklist, Brian, is a, such a good exercise of having everything that I know or I would think of, plus many other great people would think of, put them together and rank like subjectively objective as much as you can, right? Now the checklist covers great fundamentals like of business success, like the mode of the business, potentials, um, optionality, financials, management, and culture. But surprisingly, I noticed it does not have a specific weighting for valuations, at least in the traditional sense of valuations. I'm certain you did not overlook it. There must be a conscious choice you were going about it. Can you, as a high growth investor, which I would think of you as, explain us how do you think about valuations when making a decision? 
Valuation is one of the trickiest things to think about. And it used to be one of my top things that I, that I looked at. I would screen for companies based on the traditional valuation metrics. And if you follow a lot of the great investors to the past, uh, Buffett being the obvious, most, most obvious answer, um, they hammer home that valuation is incredibly uh, important. I always look at valuation. I don't take a, a, a blind eye to it. However, I have learned the hard way that business quality matters a great deal more than valuation does. And if you only focus on valuation, it's very easy to scare yourself out of investing in the greatest companies of our time. Just from my own past history, in 2005, the company I worked for adopted Salesforce.com, their, their, their software. And I quickly realized if Salesforce goes down, our company ceases functioning. Like we cannot, we literally cannot sell or service our product if Salesforce goes down. And I knew that they had, this is 2005. And I thought, wow, this company has a great, great business, a uh, great product. I wonder if they're publicly traded. Lo and behold, they were. And I looked and I saw that the price to earnings ratio was a hundred. And I said, nope, can't invest in this. Great company, but the PE ratio is a hundred. Uninvestable, way too high. The stock is up at least 20x <laughs> over that time period. And that's not the only time that I've done that. I've done that time and time again. And when I look back at some of my greatest investments, they were at times when the valuation metrics would have told you to, to stay away. Now, again, I want to reiterate, I always look at valuation. When I was developing my quality checklist um, that, that you're referencing, it is solely focused on business quality. And what I, my, my long-term strategy is to find and own as many of the highest quality businesses that I can. So my checklist is exclusively focused on business quality. That's just the first step. I rank companies and I try and find the highest quality ones that I find. Once I've identified the companies that I think are very high quality, I buy them when uh, I think the business, the combination of business quality, long-term potential, and valuation are the most, the most appealing. So that's why there's nothing to do with valuation in my checklist. It's not that I've overlooked it. It's just that's not the point of, of the checklist. The actual decision for what to buy at any given time is done with the checklist guidance, but it also factors in valuation. And when it comes to valuation, uh, I've learned, again, you have to be very generous with the way that you a, apply it. And to me, the higher, the higher the growth rate and the longer I think a, a company can grow for, uh, the more lenient I am with, with valuation. If a company is very high quality and it's worth $5 billion, and I legitimately think that it could be worth $50 billion one day, uh, I am very lenient with the valuation that I am willing to pay just to get in today. If a company is worth $200 billion and I could see it being worth $300 billion, I am far more focused on valuation and far more price sensitive. So nice. hope that explains it. Yeah, I remember seeing your tweet where you're saying if a $20 stock is going to 200, do you really matter? Does it really matter if you buy it in 1933 or 2175? 
Um, so you're, you're looking at, I guess you're comparing valuations with terms of how much potential it has and the more potential it has, the less you think about valuations. Yeah, I would say that that's, that, that's fair. And investing is very much an art. <laughs> There's, there's, there's hard numbers that you use to, to apply to investing, but if you're only making decisions based on numbers, uh, you're just not going to own the best, uh, the best uh, growth stocks. So my attempt at the checklist was, a was an attempt to quantify um, art things with, with hard numbers, and I do it all uh, myself, so I'm applying a relatively similar um, process across uh, any, any businesses. But even I know that my checklist has flaws. It's a it's a it's a completely flawed system, and it overlooks uh, it over it overlooks things. And I sometimes assign too high about too high. I think that company's moat is 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 too high, and I overestimate it. In other cases, I underestimate uh, a company's uh, potential. I actually think that the output of the checklist is way less important than the exercise of going through the checklist. When you, when you use a checklist to think through, what are the company's current financials? Where could they be? Is the moat developing? Is it weak? What is their source of moat? What kind of optionality does it have? Who are the, who are the managers? Are they incentivized in the right way? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Thinking through those things and thinking through the pitfalls is, is far more important than the final output. It's hmm. also worth pointing out that the checklist result is a point in time number. It's like a balance sheet. It changes over time. The first time I ranked Pinterest, for example, uh, it got in the 60s, which for me is my, in my why bother, uh, my bother camp. I still invested in it because I could see the potential for it to improve over time. And as the business has continued to scale and grow, and I think its moat has gotten uh, a stronger uh, over time, its score, its score has gradually improved. So you have to keep, I, I try and keep all of that in mind, but again, I want to reiterate the point of my checklist is not the absolute output. It's the process of going through it. Got it. So of course there are many thousand P or hundred times sales companies that go bust or don't go anywhere. I guess you don't give that attention that much to them because you're evaluating business high quality more than that. And if you're too confident in the business quality, you're separating a sales force from many other, for example, bubbles that might exist in speculative areas of the market. PE ratio is often a metric that people uh, point to. And if you look, there's a lot of very high quality, high growth stocks today that have PE ratios in the hundreds or, or the thousands. The problem that I see people making with the PE ratio in particular, and this is a problem that I personally have made many, many times, is that they're using the PE ratio at the wrong time. When a company is in high growth mode, it is purposely sacrificing profitability today in order to reinvest in the business, to hire out uh, to more engineers, to open up new sales offices, to create new products, et cetera, et cetera. So the earnings of the company are not the focus. They are artificially depressed because all of the gross profits of the business are being reinvested. Because yeah. the earnings are artificially depressed, using the price to earnings ratio is, of course, going to give you a much higher number than you would, than you would uh, expect. You have to use the price to earnings ratio when a company is fully optimized for earnings. Yeah, no, uh, that's a great point. I've 
like another thing you say was differentiating a company that can't make money versus doesn't want to make money today just because it wants to make more money tomorrow. So is there anything in the financial statements where you look how, what is the reinvestment which leads to a net loss, which like how you know, looking at two financial statements of how I guess gross margins would be one? Yes, gross, uh, just the general margin profile of a business. I think you can, uh, you can learn a lot. So if a company does, let's say they do $100 in sales, for, for example, and uh, their gross margin is 80%. So they have $80 in gross profit. And then their bottom line is only $1. So their yeah. current profit margin is 1%. That tells me that they are investing aggressively into yeah. research and development, into GNA, into overhead to build out the rest of the business. And the exercise I go through in my mind is just, all right, what kind of profit margin, net margin after all expenses are paid with, could this company have if it was fully optimized for profits today? A company with an 80% gross margin, that's rare. And it's not impossible for companies like that to keep after tax 20 or even 25%. As a, as a profit. So just thinking through that, I would just say, all right, if the profit margin today is 1% and in time it could grow to 25%, that means that earnings today are understated by a factor of 20 or 25. Therefore, yeah. the price to earnings ratio is overstated by a factor of 20 to 25. So in those cases, you can think through uh, how to apply the PE ratio, but yeah, the way that I look and judge a company's financials in that case is by looking at the margin profile. Great. And quality of business is so different from different uh, areas. And margin profile is like an objective measure to get a first hand at company or business you may not even know, right? Exactly. So one so list that people take in tech investing is going from, okay, let's forget about price to earnings. It's the old way or the things that it doesn't work that way. Let's look at price to sales multiples. Now, if you look at the best performers of the last years and probably going ahead, Snowflake trades at 80 times sales, Lemonade 77 times sales, a bunch of Shopify, Fiverr, CrowdStrike, Trade Desk, all of them trade at 30 to 40 times sales. Now we're in this environment where if you read most of the research notes, equity notes, uh, research notes, equity desk notes, they start from evaluating TAM and they start with especially with these packs, 2025 to 2030 uh, multiples. Now they look all attractive at 25, 2030 multiples. They all look attractive in terms of TAM. It's a $3 trillion market. It's a real estate market. You're starting like what? Your revenue is at 200 million? Oh my God, let's get this. So how does one, um, we got the part about earnings and um, margins, but now how do, does one get away from or get comfortable with such high TAM or um, TAM deductions or sales multiples? All valuation metrics have flaws. Literally every single one has flaws. Price to sales ratio is, is no different. And yes, many, many companies today are trading at extremely high price to, to sales ratios. And it can become very hard to get comfortable with paying 30, 40, 50 times sales for a business. When it comes to price to sales, I always ask myself, to your point, how big could this company potentially be if the thesis plays out? How big is their market? Do they have opportunities to expand their market? Because when you're looking at a company today, you're often seeing its current addressable market opportunity. And just think through this. 
1997, what was Amazon's market opportunity? Book sales. Yeah. <laughs> What's CDs? its market opportunity today? Retail <laughs> sales. <laughs> it's, it's many, many multiples bigger. And there was no way to know in 1997 that if you were buying Amazon stock, you were buying into a business that was going to be selling um, cloud services uh, 10 and 20 years uh, later. So if I think a company has optionality, you should factor that into your uh, investment decision. If a company has a very high gross margin, gross margin of 80% or 90%, uh, that is worth more. The, a dollar of those sales is just worth more than a dollar of sales at a business with a 20 or 30% uh, gross margin. There's so much more room in every new dollar of sales for a company to reinvest in itself and to reward shareholders. The faster the growth rate, uh, if you are trading at 100 times sales, but you can legitimately double your sales for two or three years in a row, that price to sales ratio falls extremely quickly. So there's many different factors to, to think about uh, when you're looking at a, a price to sales ratio and keep them in your mind. I'm not going to go out and defend many of the stocks that you listed because they are trading at such high price to sales ratios that investors are pricing in tremendous sales growth and success uh, for those, for those um, stocks to, to play out. So it, it's always on a uh, specific basis. And if I owned one of those stocks and the price to sales ratio got way out of, way out of whack, uh, I would just not buy more of it and focus on investing on other companies that make sense. Hence why every time I'm trying to buy something, it's always thinking about the combination of quality, opportunity, and valuation at any given time. Mm, I specifically listed those names because just those sales multiples have kept me away slash limited to 1% of my portfolio. And I see all the time they keep going. They go from 30 to 50 times multiples, no big deal, but I lost that. <laughs> now, uh, I, so this is about, your checklist is about what to buy. And we talked about a little bit what may keep people from buying like valuations, earnings or sales multiples. I know you're not a big fan of talking about when, because in long-term it doesn't really matter, but if you look at uh, one really uh, thing that is going on right now is the low interest rate environment is, is, is what is fueling slash uh, evaluating on future earnings. You get much higher multiples or valuations on current earnings. So in a scenario two years down the line, if let's say interest rates go up to 10 year goes to 3%, what, what is your, not asking for a prediction, but what is your assessment? What happens? Do like, does an 80 times multiple go down to 40 times? Does it crash 50% and still not be cheap or in words cheap? So what do you, how do you think about that? Maybe, maybe not. The answer there is, I don't know. When it comes it, to macro questions, like what happens to the percent, uh, the interest rates uh, over time and how those relate to, to stock prices, uh, those factors absolutely matter. They, and they could have a significant uh, uh, impact on the valuations of prices. One reason that stocks have done so well is that every other asset class that you could invest in looks terrible by comparison. Uh, cash pays zero and is negative in real terms. Uh, the same is even true for bonds. Uh, a lot of people are pushing their bond portfolio into dividend-paying stocks if they want to realize any sort of return uh, on them. If interest rates go to 3% uh, in in a, in a few years, there could be a percentage of the population that says, I would rather own cash or bonds uh, instead of stocks. And that completely could deflate a lot of high valuations 
uh, that we've seen. But those are the kind of big macro questions that I can't answer and I can't predict. So I spend 0% of my time trying to think through that. I am solely focused on what businesses could exist today. And if I buy them today, I think they will be worth more five and 10 years from now because the big macro stuff I can't predict and I have no control over. Yeah. And now last on valuations before we move on is, is there a, you said beyond a certain point, if it goes like exponentially or parabolically high, you may stop adding, or if it gets too expensive, you may get, or not expensive, but um, so is there, what's the point where, where do you differentiate between a buy and hold? Totally depends on the, every, every into business. Uh, If a company has gone up, up enormously, um, but I still think it has a tremendous growth runway ahead. Uh, like one stock that you asked me about before was Fiverr. Fiverr is up like 10 times in value over the last year. But even still, Fiverr is an $8 billion company or something along those lines. It's a very high quality uh, business. So while it's up huge and the, the price you're paying today uh, to get in is, is very high, could Fiverr be a $50 billion stock? Could it be a $100 billion stock if the thesis plays out? I could see that happening. Mm-hmm. I, I could see that happening. Uh, therefore, if you want to own Fiverr, own Fiverr. Like there's literally, there could be 10x potential even from today's very, very high valuation. So that's the way that I, that I think through. Uh, Snowflake, on the other hand, not a stock that I own, but I think that company is well over $100 billion and they're trading at like 200 times sales or some ridiculously high valuation. I don't know that company well enough to say that this company could be $500 billion or a trillion or something like that, but I would be more price sensitive with a company like Snowflake just because it's already worth a hundred billion versus a company like Fiverr, which is only is still sub 10 billion. Yeah. And getting to not only holding, like buy is difficult, but holding is even <laughs> equally difficult. How do you resist the urge of, you know, you have as an analyst, you as somebody who reads about new companies and industries all the time, there's like 100 new teams that keep coming, 100 new names that keep coming. One urge is to take from the big winners and not necessarily put it to the losers, but let's create that uh, 10 bunch of uh, basket of stocks from what I've made in this winner, right? Instead of one bet, now I have 10 bets. How do you resist the urge of not cashing in in your winner and like putting into new names? I don't fully resist that urge. Sometimes if a company has gone up tremendously and I think that its best days are behind it, I will trim that huge winner and redeploy into stocks that I think could drive the next phase of growth for my my portfolio. Uh, One stock that I've been uh, trimming my portfolio uh, is Booking Holdings, Mm -hmm. ticker symbol BKNG. It was one of my biggest winners of all time. It was up hugely. I bought into that company in 2010, 2011, and it's at least it's at least an, a ten bagger uh, for my portfolio. I still think it's a high quality, a very high quality uh, business. But we all we all know that coronavirus caused the demand for travel to just get uh, eviscerated. I have full confidence that that will come back eventually. But given booking size. Uh, and, and the weighting that we'll have to do, plus the valuation that we're, we're seeing today, uh, I have a hard time seeing the company continuing to put up strong double-digit growth 
um, above its pre-COVID levels um, for, uh, for a long period of time. I could be wrong about that, but I think that's a hard thing for it to, to do. I am happy to steadily trim my position in booking and use the proceeds from there to buy companies that I think have 10x potential from where they are today. So it's not that I resist the urge. I'm always thinking about where do I think this company could be? And if the thesis is played out, I'm perfectly, com- I'm perfectly fine with trimming some from one of your extreme winners and buying, uh, buying smaller companies. I see. Also, uh, is it that I guess you're a big disrupting investor, right? Like this, you, you like investing in disruptive companies. Do you think like once a field or a sector has been disrupted enough, now there are other players, you go from disruptive to disrupting to disrupting. Who is disrupting now? Uh, like Uber, the way it was disrupting in 2010, and then Airbnb was 2015. So like, do you go from disrupting to disrupting? Is that how you see yourself? I like to invest in, yeah, companies that I think can grow uh, economically for a long period of time. So I'm not necessarily solely focused on uh, disruption. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm focused on what companies exist today that I think have a strong competitive advantage and are capable of growing for a long period of time. They could be, they could be inventing a new market. They could be taking share in an existing in, uh, market, or they could just dominate a, a market where the entire market itself uh, is growing. I mean, two of my biggest holdings are Visa and MasterCard. Those companies are just uh, toll booth businesses for everything digital uh, payments. And while their growth rate is slowing, I think that they will continue to grow in size over time as more and more people turn to paying uh, with digital uh, digital methods. So it's not that I'm solely focused on uh, disruption, but if I do see a disruptive, tech, disruptive company uh, come along, uh, I, I am happy to buy it as long as I believe it has a sustainable competitive advantage. Got it. And um... Talking about your one of the biggest holdings and one of the biggest winners of all time, Mercado Libre, uh, what had kept me to really limit my holding was its currency free fluctuations. I mean, going through your checklist evaluation, I figured like that wasn't really that big a part if the whole business in the um, entire landscape is changing so fast. But that led me to another question. So companies like Mercado Libre, like Jumia, like JD, one of the individual investors competitive edge is to be a consumer like you are using the products you exactly know when a certain update like for example if you were a snapchat user you exactly knew when the dip was coming because the user uh, the update changed the design changed then over time uh, new things came in so being a user a consumer itself is a big deal in um, individual advantage you have now how did you assess slash how would you go about assessing something like a second Mercado Libre, a Jumia, the products that you don't use, you're not in the same geography. How would you evaluate the competitiveness of that, except just the financial reports that they release? That's tricky. Um, to, to The answer there with a company like uh, Mercado Libre is looking at the financial reports. Um, in general, I want to invest in companies that say, here is why you should invest in us, and then tracking those companies and seeing if they can execute. And if they can execute, continually, and they still have a huge market opportunity ahead, uh, I'm willing to devote some of my capital uh, to them. And because of the way that I, I scale, scale into companies, the biggest, the companies that I have the most capital in are the ones that have executed the best over time. So with a company like Mercado, Mercado Libre, if you look at their numbers, it's crystal clear that they are executing unbelievably well. 
Like they're just executing so, so well. So why I am not a consumer of, of any of their services, nor will I ever be given the geographies that they land in. It's not hard for me to look at the financials and look at the management team and say, yes, they, they are going to execute and continue to execute. This also comes up a lot given that I invest um, and study the medical device industry uh, very closely. I'm not going to use or utilize many of the medical hopefully tech actors that I, yeah, hopefully not, uh, <laughs> that I that I invest in. However, I do know uh, I do know that in that space there are some huge competitive advantages that can be developed, uh, both from a just a, a patent uh, perspective as well as a regulatory perspective. You have to get a device through uh, the FDA, for example, and that takes a long time to develop, test, clinical trials, uh, etc. But even more so, once a, uh, a technology becomes uh, clinically available and viable, it takes a long time to train healthcare providers on why they should use it and, and get them up and running on it. All of those things combined to create huge switching costs for medical uh, device uh, technology. And if that thesis then plays out in the numbers where you see tremendous revenue growth and strong margins, I'm happy to take a position in a company, even though I myself will not use it. And that's just something that I personally am comfortable with. But if, if people are not comfortable with that and they want to make sure that they use and know the product intimately before they invest, I have no problem with that. Yeah. Okay. No, that's that's fair. Uh, there's enough fix out there, right? Now, we'll, we'll get to a couple of portfolio construction questions. But before that, um, you said one of the other things you say is you don't pick your portfolio concentration portfolio itself when it picks itself, right? Winners keep winning and it adds up to higher percentage of portfolio. Not that necessarily you put that much portfolio percentage wise into Amazon, Tesla, Netflix. It just became so. So is there a percentage you limit? Like how much would you put? Um, not what it is now, but when you're allocating new capital, like not more than a certain percentage of the capital you put in a certain name and then let it see where it goes? Yes. Uh, I consider like building my portfolio kind of like driving a cruise ship. Like it takes re it takes small moves uh, to really shape the portfolio uh, over time. So in general, my strategy is to at any given buy, the most I'm buying at any given time is 0.5% of my portfolio. So half of 1% of my portfolio is how much I'm going to uh, put into position uh, at any given time. And no matter how high my conviction is, in a company, I'm not going to devote more than 3% of my capital uh, uh, to, to a company. The reason I developed that is because I've broken that previously and I've gotten burned. And if you asked me seven years ago, what are your highest conviction stocks? Literally number one, number two, number three, all three of those are lower today than they were seven years ago. So I've kind of learned about myself that I can be, I can deceive myself. Uh, my, my conviction in a company does not always match up with reality and what is going to happen uh, next. Previously, my number one uh, position uh, in, was in a company called Kinder Morgan, uh, which is a, a pipeline operator. And if you just go through, uh, they had so many competitive advantages going for them. Uh, owner operator, great returns on capital, a growing uh, dividend, a uh, huge inside uh, ownership. They had these take or pay contracts and theoretically they were insulated from oil uh, prices. And I just thought, man, this is like as no-brainer basic as it gets. So I put more than 5% of my capital into them, and I layered on uh, option strategy on top because I was so confident in the company. 
lo and behold, uh, when oil prices dropped, uh, all those take or pay contracts that they had basically didn't matter because their customers who are on the other end were going bankrupt. And it's really hard to enforce a contract when the counterparty has no money. So that company fell 60 or so uh, percent. And it was my biggest dollar loss that I've ever taken. Uh, conversely, company like, uh, like Tesla, I put uh, 0.2% of my portfolio into in like 2011. And that, that, that position is currently up at least 100 times in value. Uh, if not more. So Tesla has become one of my top holdings without me having to do anything. Mm. I, in fact, I, I bought it very, very few times. I just didn't sell. So I have learned uh, that if I just devote a tiny little bit of my portfolio to companies uh, and then let the, let the market kind of pick which, where my portfolio should go, uh, that is a formula that leads to, uh, to outperformance uh, over time. So by creating these seemingly arbitrary rules for myself, where it's half a percent at any given time and a maximum of 3%, it prevents me uh, from uh, prevents me from using my overconfidence in, in a company. Uh, and it, for, it prevents me from underinvesting in companies that go on to be huge winners. Hmm. No, that's nice. And probably it also keeps you from making reckless decisions, like getting excited about a new company and swapping 10% of portfolio from one company to the other in the wrong time. Yes, ex exactly. And all these things that I've learned and the checklist, all that comes, that's all from my own personal mistakes. Like yeah. I've been investing long enough that I've made so many mistakes and I created these rules for myself and I created checklists for myself uh, because I have the mental scars from, yeah. from losing money in the past. And I just want to create guide rails for myself so that I don't make the same mistakes over and over again. But is that is that include resisting the urge to like getting super excited? For example, I'm guessing you're super excited about Pinterest right now. Do you like go to bed thinking, why is my portfolio not 25% Pinterest if I'm like so bullish about it because you're with your 3% cap? Does that, how do you resist that urge of, am I going big enough into this? I'm not worried about that. Uh, I, I, all I want to know is, it, do I own Pinterest and do I think it can grow uh, from today? So far, I've been so far, I've been I've been right about Pinterest, and of course, with the benefit of hindsight, I would of course love to go back and devote uh, much more of my portfolio to it th th than I had. But what if I was wrong? What if I what what if I'm wrong? My thesis for Pinterest is their user base is going to grow and their monetization is going to grow. Hmm. That's my thesis. But what if it's wrong? What if it's wrong? <laughs> if I'm right, I think Pinterest has the opportunity to mm. grow at least 5x uh, from today. Uh, so the, the amount of capital that I have into it will turn into much more capital uh, in time. Uh, if I'm wrong and Pinterest goes down 90%, uh, it's, uh, it's not going to kill me financially. I see. So you're resisting the urge of, oh my God, this is so good. Why don't I have my 25% by having the humility of this is what I think. But I think so many things and not That's all right. things might be right. <laughs> Again, I was extremely confident. I was more confident in Kinder Morgan seven, seven years ago than I am in Pinterest today, for, yeah. for example. And that did not work out. Hmm. Yeah, I like your um, fact that you keep carrying Kinder Morgan everywhere. It's like Berkshire keeping his name just to remember or remind yourself of like, you're not perfect kind of thing. Right. Yes. <laughs> Now, a portfolio construction question. Um, this is just something I thought of. How would you compare two portfolios? One is very heavy on FANG names, right? Like, let's say 80% is FANG names. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Apple, let's say Microsoft. And 
Second is a bunch of high growth five to $50 billion names. Is it as simple as saying, if businesses on both sides are good, the second portfolio will have much higher returns because the companies are smaller in size and the first one is way more mature? That's like the perception nowadays, like, hey, if you own all fang names now, you're just representing the QQQ and how can you beat the market? If you really have the 10x desire, go with the smaller names. How do you think about it? Yeah, I would think about it just like that. But like anything, it's still the, the fundamentals of the businesses still still apply. Like Amazon is enormous and it's still growing its revenue. I think last quarter, its revenue growth was like 40% or some extreme number uh, like, like that. So that is what's gonna determine the valuations of those companies over time and how, and how big they can become. If you asked me um, how big Apple could, have, could become, I wouldn't have said 2 trillion. Yeah. I would not have said $2 trillion, which is where Apple is today. I think it's 2.2 uh, trillion or, 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 or something along those lines. I personally don't think that Apple is gonna beat the market uh, from here or at least outperform uh, significantly, but I would have said that at 800 billion. <laughs> so I was, I was wrong uh, then. But in general, when I'm thinking about uh, deploying new capital, I'm personally much more focused on companies that are say under $50 billion than those that are over $500 billion. Do you, do you think about it? Like I'm, I'm, I'm investing in a company that is a one and a half trillion, like how big can it become? Or, or if it's like sustaining its organic growth rate and that shouldn't be thought about much. Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no such thing as the market cap stops here, yeah. like the like a, just like three years ago, there was no such thing as a trillion dollar company. Yeah. Now there's Give four. <laughs> now there's now there's four of them. Um, and just like what a year ago there was no such thing as a two trillion dollar company, and now there's now there's uh, now there's two of them. Uh, but again, if you rewind the clock fifty years, the idea that a company could be worth a hundred billion was impossible. Like that was just too much money. And now how many companies trade for over a hundred billion dollars? I mean, there's, there's dozens, if not, yeah, probably dozens uh, of them. So there's no upper limit uh, on how, uh, how big a company can be, become. And I think that technology is enabling these companies to be manageable at a scale that was unthinkable uh, not, that, not that long ago. Uh, but that doesn't change the point that when I'm deploying new capital, I'm still thinking about where is the most efficient place to use this capital. And for the most part, I'm, I'm focused on companies that are under 50 billion. I see. And for like the larger companies, last question on that, to get out of them, are you watching like their organic growth rate to dip below a certain percentage below which it doesn't interest you? Yes, exactly. What's so if a, if, a company's, if, a company's, if a company's organic growth rate falls below 10%, uh, that tells me that the thesis is being played out and its growth rate is going to slow probably to the, to the markets. Now, if they have optionality that can reignite that uh, growth rate, you still might be, uh, I, I still might be interested in them if they have a lot of like moonshot projects that they're uh, developing. Uh, but in, in general, I become less interested in a company once its organic growth rate falls below 10%. I see. So last question on the portfolio construction. So I, I'm guessing you pick high quality businesses and allocate no more than 3% and see where it goes. It's not, you're not going in terms of how much percentage of my portfolio is profitable, like companies that are profitable or are returning dividends or are very early stage, just, just to like, to ignore the situation, 
where to prevent a situation where all of the businesses you own seem good businesses but none of them make money is that you're behind your mind or you don't even think about it as part of my quality checklist uh, i i do place an emphasis on profits and free cash flow. Uh, so if a company is profitable, uh, it, it, the score is biased upwards. And if it's unprofitable, the score is biased uh, downwards. So uh, I would say that the majority of the companies that I own are profitable, or if they are not, they are very close to the yeah. cusp of being profitable. I own very few companies that have huge um huge net losses or, and I own even fewer that have like, say no revenue, uh, uh, for example. So the less risky a company becomes and by risky in that stage, I do mean the closer it becomes to profitability or if it could, like we talked about before, if the company had the ability at a moment's notice to become profitable, if it chose to invest less aggressively uh, in itself, I would still consider that to be a high quality business. Uh, but overall, I don't think to myself, I have to have 20% in dividend payers. I have to have 50% in, in uh, companies that are already profitable. I'm just focused on business quality and filling my portfolio with as many high quality businesses as I can. Got it. One final one, because before we move on to the next series of uh, questions, in terms of your checklist and doing the moat analysis, do you think you have to do enough research on the industry first to be able to tell the moat? That helps. It, ha it certainly helps to know the dynamics of the industry uh, first. And moat is a very tricky thing. It really is because it's so, it's so subjective. And some companies, their moat is just brand's name. And you're, you're betting on the brand's name becoming the category killer over time. Um, so it's, it's just completely, it's a subjective thing that's very, very hard to do. Um, but the more you do it and the better, you know, say the industry, or if you have other companies that you can point to as well, it's kind of following the same trajectory as this previously successful company. I think that that's, what's important. Got it. Good. I think, uh, all of that is helpful when put in a mindset kind of a mind frame kind of scenario, right. To keep all of those things together. Now, Brian, are you ready for a fire round? Sure. Uh, by no means, it means that you have to limit your answers. It can go like, take a minute, go into it if you'd like, but as in fire round is back to back with not necessarily connected questions. So first, uh, would you give us two companies that you're really excited about in 2021? Uh, Semler Scientific, that's S-M-L-R and Pinterest, P-I-N-S. One sentence or paragraph each on why those okay. right now. <laughs> Pinterest is, I think more monetizable than Facebook and one-tenth the size. Uh, and Semler is a highly profitable, high-growth uh, company focused on uh, prevention, uh, prevention and detection of peripheral artery disease. And I can see that company growing at a very high rate for decades. And Semler is still pretty small in terms of market. Extremely small. It's sub one billion. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, are you a user on Pinterest, Brian? Yes. Okay, uh, I am not, and that's what's kept me away, but I've realized I should just sign up and find out for myself. Uh, second question, is there any SPAC that has interest, uh, has you excited these days? I'm not, I have never invested in a, a SPAC, and I know that they've become uh, all the rage. In general, I always look at IPOs and new public companies, but I'm not like solely focused uh, on them. But uh, uh, one fact that I am interested in is a long view, Acquisition Corp, which is LGVW. Hmm. That's the company that's going to acquire or merge with uh, Butterfly, 
um, which is a company focused on portable uh, ultrasound. So that's what I'm interested in. Well, I guess we should take your word. You're in that area. Medical devices is your is your thing. Uh, do you wait for them to announce acquisition, or if you were interested, do you ever go before they announce an acquisition? I guess no. I've never invested in a spec. Period. So I can't imagine myself giving money to a manager and just saying I trust this manager implicitly. That's not what I would do. I, uh, I would rather put my capital in companies that I already know and can analyze. Next, uh, one book that every investor should read. So uh, for investors, I'll go with Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. The psychology of money management uh, and thinking is so incredibly important. And Morgan's book is just uh, fantastic. But one other one I will throw out there that's not related to investing is yeah. The Millionaire Next Door, which okay. is just one of the best books on personal finance. And in general, I think personal finance is 10, if not 100 times more important than investing knowledge. I see. I have read Psychology of Money, and it's so well written for like a layperson to just get from no, coming from nowhere to getting it. Um, but I haven't read the second one. I'll pick it up. Uh, is there one reading that you do every single day that has nothing to do with investing? I don't read... I mean, I, I spend a lot of time on investing in money and that's what I absolutely love, but I do read uh, fiction uh, every now and again. One of my favorite books ever is like The Martian by uh, Andy Weir. I could just reread that book uh, over and over again, but uh, there's a wonderful book here that's related to money that yeah. uh, it's called Beyond Wealth uh, by Alexander Green. And this is about living the good life and it's from a former uh, money manager. So I highly recommend that book. It's related to investing and it's also not related to investing. Next one. I know you're into board games. Is there any investing board game or board game that you play with kids that you suggest that you tells people about money? There's so, that's a fantastic question. I think just playing strategy board games in general is a wonderful way to teach kids about money, even if it has nothing to do with money. Uh, one, one game that my family loves playing is Settlers of Catan, yeah. which is a game that has nothing to do with money, but it does have things to do with trading, with resource allocation, with thinking long-term, uh, with planning and stuff like that. So again, that has nothing to do with, with money, but I think that games are wonderful training tools for teaching kids about uh, building wealth. Awesome. Uh, I also scripted this game called uh, Portfolio. I'll send it along to you just to see how oh, you cool. think about it. Yeah. Uh, it also explains about a little bit, goes into the call options to understand how those leverage work. Wow, really getting into yeah. the weeds there, huh? <laughs> kind of, just uh, covering all the bases, you know. So, so Brian, uh, if we had to list one thing that high growth investors should definitely keep in mind, if not anything else, what would that be? It's... It's always the same answer for me. Just think about the long term. Yeah. So easy yeah. to think about the short term. Everything in media, everything about investing is hyper-focused on the short term. You go on any, any, any website related to finance, what do you see? Stock prices. Yeah. That's all you see. Stock prices, the ticker and the stock price. That's it. There's, no, there's so little information in there about financial statements and earnings and a long-term business competitive advantages and things like that. So the entire business community or the entire finance community is trained around what's happening right now, what's happening today. And you have to be able to step back and say, where are these companies going to be in five years, mm. 10 years? And that's the time frame that you need to have. That takes training. 
That takes practice. That takes uh, purposeful thinking. So my brain is trained through years and years of, of trial and error to, to think long-term. So when people, people send me messages on Twitter all the time saying, fill in the blank stock is down 8% today. What's wrong? What happened? I never know the answer. I rarely, I rarely know the answer. And I'm like, I, I don't know. And I don't care. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me what, what's happening to the stock price today. What matters to me is where my companies will be in five plus years. So that would be the one giant thing that I'm trying to drill into everyone's head is think long-term. You're trying to think as a founder or an owner and maybe a private company. You're just thinking five, 10 years down the line. Yes, constantly, which is again, super hard to do and it takes training, (laughs) but it's, it's, it, it gives you an edge like nothing else. Yeah, just like people don't think about retirement enough because it's far away in their mind. Anything that we missed on high growth investing, Brian? No, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. We are so grateful to have you and everyone who's listening. I am sure, Brian, you you said in one of the podcasts, it was your dad who gifted you, um, poor rich dad, poor dad, after your graduation gift, and that got you into everything. So I hope this podcast could be like that one gift who hasn't got into this. After this, they'll be like, what the heck is Brian talking about? Let me search this. Let me look at the checklist. Let me do my homework and get through the names with the long-term mindset. And in which case, I think you need to follow him. His Twitter, he is growing parabolically like Bitcoin, his followership. He puts out great content every single day. As you can see on the screen, his handle is at Brian Feroldi. You can follow him on Twitter. You can follow him on Motley Fool. Or also, you can go to brianferroldi.substack.com. And I am pretty sure you will not be disappointed. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sunny, for having me. It was a lot of fun. I look forward to doing this again with you sometime. Sounds good. Thank you. Hello, listeners. This is Sunny again. Thank you for listening. I personally admire Brian a lot, Brian Feroldi. So this has been a great episode. I hope uh, you took a lot out of it. It's a great value. Definitely do not uh, forget to share this episode with your friends, your family, those who have been investing, those who have been meaning to get into investing, or are just excited to know more about the concept of personal finance, saving money, and investing. So definitely do not forget to share, subscribe, and uh, leave a good review. The podcast link is bit.ly slash sunnypointpod, but you can find it on any platform, basically where you're listening right now. Just search sunnypoint and subscribe. Also on Instagram, I'm taking uh, answering all the DMs uh, back. If you have any questions, any requests, I'm answering all the DMs. And we also are doing um, Tip Tuesday. So every Tuesday, we go into 5 to 10 minute videos researching a stock or company or a business and present you your analysis. So my Instagram is the sunny point, T-H-E sunny point. Nothing in between, no spaces, no blanks. Um, so reach out there. Let, let us know of your next requests and share your this episode with um, your friends and family because that's the best form of love to share best practices about investing with those you love. Well, pretty close to it, I would say. <laughs> Happy investing and see you soon. Take care.